Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. As a housekeeping update, the server that I've been hosting the Thinking Elixir podcast on is changing. So I've already set up the redirects, but it may take a little time for all the different podcast services to update their directories. So we've been doing the podcast for about a year and a half, and the show has been successful. So yay, people are sharing it, others are finding it, and the numbers of listeners is up. All good news. We created this podcast because we love the Elixir community, the Elixir programming language, and we wanted to provide meaningful content. The problem is the show outgrew the server that it was on. So the podcast has moved to be hosted by Fireside.fm. What this means for you is that hopefully no change is needed. Your podcast app should all be redirected over and automatically just work. The benefit of the change is that the episode descriptions now include more of the news items and topic discussions right there in your player. So that's cool. And just wanted to let you know about this change. Shouldn't be an issue for you. Should actually just make it more reliable and bring a few other improvements. So thank you for helping the show to be successful. Now, let's jump into the news. First up, Jose Valim has started the advent of code and streaming live on Twitch. The solutions that he's been working on are actually in live book notebooks, so you can play with them yourself. This has actually been a whole lot of fun to watch and see kind of how Jose breaks down the problems and solves them. In day three, he actually showed some brand new features that had just landed in Livebook thanks to Elixir 1.13. It's actually been pretty funny to watch him take notes. Every single stream, he'll take notes of things that aren't working in Livebook. And it seems like almost every other day, a new Livebook miner or patch is released to fix some of the things that he found during the live stream. The streams can get a little bit long. So somebody in the community has actually taken these videos and edited them down and broken them up into chapters. This, for instance, would take something like a 45-minute-plus live stream and take it down to a 15-minute of focused content. So if you're interested in just getting how he solves it, then we'll link that playlist in the show notes for you. It's also pretty fun to watch all of his musings in between, though. So if you have the time, watch the whole stream. It's great. So speaking of Livebook, there was a really neat example of using computer vision and NX inside of a Livebook. So we've got a link to it that has some screenshots, but... I'll describe it for you. The example is pulling an image of a cat and then giving some sample answers that it could be. A cat, hot dog, dog, Eiffel Tower, that kind of stuff. And the OpenCV library detected that it was a cat. And so the library is called eVision. looks like it's still pretty new. It looks pretty neat. And the fact that you can do it inside of Livebook, which, remember, is about computer you know, learning, developed alongside of NX here, it's really neat to see it all come together. The extra steps were taken to make a reduced set of OpenCV functionality work on nerves even. So you can imagine having a little a little pie camera detecting some objects and doing the computer vision and uh, operating on those images. Anyway, really cool stuff. And I guess the big news is that Elixir 1.13 was released. So we have a link to the blog post that gives a nice high-level descriptions and explanations of what's in the new release, and also a link to the change log, which has a much more detailed set of features that were added, giving some links to the PRs if you want to dig into some of those more. So we've talked about the Elixir 1.13 release before, as a lot of the PRs were coming in and getting merged, and even as the release candidates were being released. So now we have the official release. As a reminder, this is mostly a developer tooling improvement release. However, some new stuff did squeeze through as well. We'll just highlight a few of the big things that were in this release. So one of them is semantic recompilation. And this is the area that immediately benefits all Elixir developers. It's a series of improvements made to how the compiler tracks file contents. So generally speaking, once a file changes, it may lead to other files in your code base being recompiled. In previous versions, however, Elixir made no effort to understand which parts of the file were changed, and this meant that the smallest of changes to certain files, like a configuration file, would trigger a full project recompilation. So this release comes with a series of improvements that better understands how your files change. Yeah, I think we spoke to someone about some of these recompilation issues, and he had said something like even just doing a touch on a file caused a whole chain reaction of even though nothing changed, right? So this will be really fun to see. 
Also new in Elixir 1.13 is a new code.fragment module that was introduced to give some insight to developer tools. And those developer tools, which are like a favorite topic of mine, are things that can help editors understand like auto-completion, for example. In older versions of Elixir, if you were to open up a struct, like percent, my struct, curly bracket, and then you try to hit tab or, you know, have any kind of code action on that, like you wouldn't have anything there because it just wasn't complete. It's not valid code. This new code.fragment, however, is going to be smart enough to know that you're opening up a struct. And so it can look at the struct, inform your editor what valid keys there are, and, for example, allow you to auto-complete keys at that point. So that could be a really powerful tool. Anyway, very excited about that, and I'm excited to see what uh, Elixir LS does with this as well. As you guys were mentioning the advent of code and the changes, improvements that were happening with Livebook, one thing that I noticed is that the new Livebook release is based on and requires Elixir 1.13. And I think it's just so they can get a lot of those code fragment improvements in Livebook. So you're having a lot of that code editor improvements. Very cool. Something I'm also really excited to see. Another improvement is the Mix XREF feature. This is what powers some of the compilation improvements. So new features make it easier to tease apart some of the code dependencies in your project that are causing a lot of the files to be recompiled. Another feature is the extended code formatting. So previously, mix format, when you type that, it could not format code inside of sigils. So like within your Elixir file, maybe you had a sigil with some HTML or live templates, things like that, and it just would not format anything in the sigils. So now with this, plugins can teach the formatter how to format content when it's a whole file, like a .html file, or embedded in a sigil. So I'm really excited to see as libraries get updated and start to use this, what kinds of improvements we'll get with our mixed formatting and in the editor as well. I think I saw a tweet by Isaac Yanamoto about um, about Elixir 1.13 forcing his hand uh, in, in, <laughs> to create a zig formatter for the Z sigil. So Elixir errors have always been really nice and helpful, except sometimes those early ones. But syntax error and token missing error were improved to show a code snippet whenever possible, and this makes it easier to find that typo that's breaking your compile. I often have typos, so that, that would be really helpful. I'm excited. <laughs> Last stuff about Elixir 1.13. There's a couple of new functions that were in there, like uh, enum.slide. Angelica updated her cheat sheet on all of the enum functions and kind of what happens on the other side of that function. This cheat sheet has a, like a lot of helpful like shapes, stripes, and uh, colors on them. And if you feed some combination of those things into these functions, you'll get an example on the other side. Anyway, it's a nice visual way of learning how enum works. So it's updated to reflect the new functions in Elixir 1.13. So thanks for updating that. All right, so I think that's it for Elixir.113, though I'm sure there's a lot more there that we didn't cover. So if you want to learn more about Elixir.113, we've got a a link to the release notes, but also just tune in every week because we'll tell you all the news as they're landing, and it might sound repetitive, actually, (laughs) in our news cycle. I swear, we've we've talked about these things like three times now. But now they're in prod. But now they're out there. That's right, uh, officially released. In general Beam news, not Elixir 1.13 related now, moving on to Gleam. Gleam Gleam.0.18 was released, and this includes a new Gleam build tool. Ah, I love it. So up until this point, Gleam projects have mostly been using Rebar 3, which is the standard Erlang build tool. And it's a great tool, but Rebar 3 is meant for Erlang, right? It's not really meant for Gleam. And so it wasn't really a great fit for the language. And so with 0.18, there's a new Gleam build tool where they have full control of the developer experience and they can focus on making Gleam as productive and enjoyable as possible. I am getting Mix vibes here and we all know how good Mix is. (laughs) Some examples of what's in there is Gleam Test is in there, Gleam Run is in there, Gleam New, and then finally a Gleam Add and then your package name is in there. All really cool stuff. I really love to observe like Gleam grow here. Still feels like it's a, it's a fresh take on it. And so in case you don't know what Gleam is, Gleam is a typed language that, that compiles uh, to Erlang and JavaScript for that matter. So if you're interested in a rusty, elixir Erlang-y kind of mixture language, and rusty in in like the sense that it's rust-like, not, <laughs> not old and busted, <laughs> certainly not old and busted, Gleam might be a really cool language for you to check out. So we'll have a link in the show notes. 
So another project that came out of SpawnFest. So we've mentioned some of the SpawnFest winners recently. So just in case you're not aware, SpawnFest is an annual 48-hour online contest where teams try to build the best beam-based applications, and it's judged. So this one that I thought was pretty interesting is called eFlambe by Trevor Brown. It is a tool for rapidly profiling Erlang and Elixir code. It is intended to be one of the first tools that you reach for when you're debugging a performance issue in your Elixir or Erlang application. So with a single command, you can visualize your code's performance as an interactive flame graph in your flame graph viewer of choice. So it's written in Erlang and it's published on HexPM, so you can use it in both Erlang and Elixir projects. So you can check out some pictures of this to get an idea. If you're not really familiar with what a flame graph looks like, you can check this out and get an idea, but it helps to understand where your application is spending time. I love tools like this. I'm impressed that someone could come up with, you know, develop this in 48 hours. That's awesome. But he was another one of the SwanFest winners. So congratulations, Trevor. We had mentioned earlier how Livebook was being updated through Jose's daily streams and bug finding sprees. So 0.4 was released recently. And actually, I think 0.4.1 was even released so this update requires 1.13, and I think this is to bring some of the auto-completion. And I know I was watching some of the first days of Advent of Code, and there were some issues with the auto-completion. Like every time he would type do, it would like type def delegate for him, and he's like, all right, I'm fixing this. And I have not seen that in his subsequent streams. <laughs> <laughs> some other things, support for rendering UI controls such as buttons and keyboards and adding a Pong notebook to the Explorer section to so- showcase some controls. Now, I'll just put in a plug here. It's one of the things that I've learned about Livebook, watching Jose and some of these updates that came is uh, Kino inputs are really awesome. Every <laughs> single day, he does Kino.input.text area, runs that, and it inserts a little text area where you can easily paste that advent of code input in there, and then you can change it if you need to really easily. Anyway, some really cool stuff. One more part of that is uh, the, the signature pop-up. So like if you were to do enum.reduce and you don't quite remember what the things it needs, the signature will pop up in a little floaty thing in, in Livebook now. So it'll tell you what the first argument is, second argument is, and then the whole function document right in there. Also in the news, the Sorcerer library got a new release to version 0.9.0. We talked more about this library in depth in episode 54 with Lucas San Roman. So we've got a link to that show. And as a quick refresher, what Sorcerer is, it's a library for parsing Elixir code to a modified AST that is intended more for developer tooling. If I remember correctly, it wanted to keep comments in there. Uh, at least that was the origin story of it. So that way it can like accurately rewrite your file without losing some valuable information and comments can be valuable. So this release is mostly a bug fix release, but it also introduces more helper functions to like rename functions, which is pretty nice in LSPs, right? <laughs> and identifiers as well. So awesome to see that update. Developer tooling is getting so good. Loving it. And a follow-up from episode 73, where we talked with Paul Copplestone at Supabase. If you recall, Supabase is an open source Firebase alternative that leverages Elixir to help provide the service. Well, they recently open sourced their dashboard, and we're including a link to that. It's the studio folder under their project. So the dashboard is not written in Elixir. It's a JS front end, but it is neat to see that they are really truly are committed to their open source way of trying to provide the service. And because it does leverage a lot of Elixir and people can self-host it, just want to make sure that you are aware and have that little follow-up there. Lastly, ElixirConf EU 2022 is happening in London slash virtually on April 6th through the 8th. By the time you hear the news, the call for talks will have ended. So perhaps soon we will see the speaker lineup. Looking forward to this conference. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Chris Bell. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you, dear listener, you may recognize Chris's voice. He was a longtime host of the Elixir Talk podcast. So we're happy to have you here, but we're not really talking all about that. We do want to get an update, just find out how, how you're doing, how things are going. But I'm looking forward to talking to you about a couple of things. One, you and Todd Resedek are starting MPEX Mountain, 
which is a conference that's going to be here in Utah where Kate and I are located. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But also a company that you're working at called Knock. This is an interesting one because it's the whole idea of starting a new company, starting from Elixir from the ground, what's going well, what's not going well. We'd love to hear all of that. But before we jump into all that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? I'm actually in Boulder, Colorado these days. If anyone listening has listened to Elixir Talk in the past, I was previously in New York for a long time. But I actually moved out here in the summer. You know, one of those pandemic moves like most people seem to have done. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely a beautiful kind of place to be and a very different lifestyle from New York, but enjoying it a lot. On the work front, I actually co-founded Knock, So that's my company. That's a whole new endeavor for me this year. So lots to talk about on that front as well. Well, cool. I did just want to touch base on Elixir Talk because that's where I first heard you and Desmond Bowie. Uh, you guys recorded for yet a, a long time that you were running and recording episodes. And just is there any updates or kind of what's the status of that of that show? And what do you think about it? So we did Elixir's talk for over two years. We have a funny story about the fact that we actually started at episode 101. And that was because Desmond wanted to show that there was like a lot of back catalog for the show. So maybe if you're looking at it and you look at our SoundCloud or whatever, it looks like there's more episodes than there actually are. But we recorded, I think it's like 60 or something like that. I would say we're on hiatus. I don't want to say it's dead in the water just because I don't like putting any projects kind of to bed, mm -hmm. especially one that you felt so strongly about and you do for so long, you know? We haven't really found the desire to do a recording recently. And I would say like, you know, you've been doing this show for a long time as well, but I, I definitely had felt wanes in motivation and things like that. And we both got just really busy. Um, Desmond's a CTO at a startup. I'm a CTO at a startup. So it's like kind of one of those things where it's trying to find time to actually do that. But I also think there are a lot of other podcasts in the community. And I think we kind of felt like we were doing a good job, but other people were doing a really fantastic job as well. So it's quite nice to make space for others and to have great shows like this and Beam Radio and Elixir Wizards and all the others kind of out there. And ultimately, I think we were just too, too like not that well-informed people <laughs> talking about <laughs> Elixir. And I think that was part of the charm, but there's only so much content you can draw from that, you know, at times. I'm curious, do you think that, that the Elixir community has more podcasts per capita <laughs> than other languages? <laughs> yeah, I really do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think it's great that we're all feeling so enthusiastic about trying to spread this community out there in the world that we want to talk about it and we want to record podcasts about it. I love that we get to have a lot of like public conversations. I really do think that that kind of fosters the the feeling of community and like just opens up conversation you, you, you know like all you got to do is write a blog post and then one day mark or you know chris you are going to like reach out to them and be like hey do you want to just talk about it and that can happen to any of the listeners today so be careful what you blog <laughs> yeah yeah so be careful what you blog <laughs> <laughs> well i also think doing the podcast is easier than blogging as well i have to say like finding time to write is just the whole other thing versus you know just talking yeah yeah i do think that the elixir community is well served by podcasts <laughs> i loved your perspective that it does speak to the excitement right that people have for it that we are passionate about it we care about it and we want other people to realize how helpful this is in solving the kinds of problems that we're faced with as developers we do get a lot of listeners who are exploring the Elixir space who come and just they, that's how they say, I am checking out Elixir. And, you know, that's what we hear from them. So speaking of community and expanding the community, tell us about MPEX. We started MPEX in New York in I think the first one was 2016. We actually hosted the conference. The idea there was we were trying to do a single track one day conference that was in a jazz club. And that's kind of that's kind of the the niche, like, and that's kind of what we were going for with it. We were just we wanted to have this like really awesome kind of conference experience whereby there's great speakers, but it's all about the environment, really fantastic aesthetic. There's tons of time for you to talk to other attendees, things like that. Was there good music as well? Yeah, we actually every year we had a jazz musician play piano. We had someone play double bass. What? Yeah, and that was like in the intermissions between talks. So. I don't want to hype it up too much because there are a lot of other Elixir conferences as well, not just podcasts. There are a lot of conferences, but we like to think that we were doing a good job in the Elixir community of 
giving a really interesting space that's aesthetically kind of interesting and beautiful and like it just like elevated that kind of conference experience so yeah i started that with desmond bowie who was the founder of it and then obviously that became elixir talk at some point down the road but there's a whole bunch of us in new york who did that and then desmond moved to la and then mpex actually shifted to la as well so we ended up being a coastal conference and by the way mpex stands for empire city elixir and now you're like, why would you keep the name? But we kind of <laughs> liked the name, you know? So we just ended up like hanging on to it and then tacking on like the city on the end. So we were trying to do another conference in 2020 for MPEX NYC. And that would have been our fifth conference. But, you know, I don't need to tell you the rest. So we put that on pause. And then I moved and started talking to Todd Resedek about, could we do something here? Could we do a conference over here? Because the way I look at it, there is a ton of stuff going on in the Elixir community out here, especially in Utah, but also in Denver, kind of Colorado, that kind of way as well. So we looked at that and we were just like, what if we brought MPEX out West and we started another chapter of it, really embodied in all those ideals that I talked about. So we've got like a fantastic venue. We're going to be hosting it in Salt Lake City on May 6th. We're not actually hosting this one in a jazz club. It's a historic venue and it has a lot of character. It's an old suffragette meeting place called Clubhouse. It's actually like steeped in a lot of history. It's super cool. It's like really lovely theater. So we'll be doing it in there. But we are on the lookout for a band or something to inject some of that magic in between talks and like have something. So it sounds like one of the things that you're looking for and want to create is that single track ability for everyone to kind of be part of the same experience. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. We founded MPEX on a few principles. One is like deep technical topics whereby there is only a single track. You all have to participate so that you can all share in that experience and talk about it afterwards. We're also just trying to make a lot of space for those kind of like hallway track kind of sessions as well. And for us, what that meant was like not necessarily having people not attend the talks, but just giving loads of space for breaks so that you can converse with your fellow attendees and things like that. Generally, like, we're looking for topics that are obviously rooted in Elixir, but we try and branch out and do things that are more like in the functional programming community at large as well. I think that there's a lot of interesting topics that you can draw from other communities that can really benefit us as engineers as well in this community. So in the past, we've had talks about like macros and like their origins and how they apply to Elixir. We've had people write uh, like, an Elixir drum machine kind of thing. So like we've had this like entire range of things and we try not to be too narrow in the focus. And that's really deliberate just so that you can come away feeling like, wow, I got a whole day's worth of content. You know, it's like eight hours. We have like nine or 10 speakers, including keynotes. And you come away and you feel like you absorbed a lot, but it wasn't too much. That's the, that's the key thing. <laughs> so we, we definitely try and strike that balance as well. For anyone who isn't able to physically attend, do you plan on having recordings? Is that going to be available online or anything like that? So yeah, every year we definitely invest in like AV and we make sure the talks are recorded. So actually you can go to the MPEX YouTube channel now and there's a whole great back catalog of all of the conference talks that we've had over the last six or seven conferences that we've hosted. This year we are aiming to do in person. I really enjoy virtual conferences, but I do think there's something missing there. And to be honest, I was at ElixirConf and I loved seeing everyone again. And that got me really fired up about doing MPEX Mountain as well. So there's definitely something there about bringing people together, being in person, really like, you know, talking to others and just uh, being face to face. So we are definitely trying to do that. So it would be an in-person conference first, and then we'll do recorded talks and release those probably like a week or two after. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So we'll have links to that in the show notes. So you can check out the more about the conference, maybe check out some of the previous recordings and See if you can fit that into your calendar. Just to plug the dates again, it's May 6th, and that's going to be in Salt Lake City. Our CFP is actually open right now through March 6th. So you've got a good couple of months to submit a talk. We are really, really, really fond of first-time speakers as well. So if you haven't given a talk before, but you have something that you might want to talk about, just hit me up personally. My DMs are open. I'd be really happy to coach you through doing that and like what makes a great abstract, help you kind of outline your slides. I can even give you slide templates as well if you uh, want some help with that because that's always the bit that takes time, let's be real. Well, I'd love to move into our our main kind of topic. You know, you said you co-founded this company called Knock 
And maybe we should just first start with what is Knock and what problem is it trying to solve? Yeah, so I co-founded Knock earlier this year in January. So Knock is basically notifications infrastructure for applications. So what does that mean? Well, I'm sure everyone on here has written something in the past where you buy, you've had to send out some notifications, right? Whether that be emails, push, SMS, Slack notifications, in-app feeds, things like that. So what we're aiming to do at Knock is actually provide a developer-focused notifications infrastructure and set of tools so that you never have to write notifications code again. So your abstraction layer effectively becomes a call to us, and then we execute what we call these workflows that basically encapsulate all of the logic around your notifications. So those can be things like send an email, wait one day, send a reminder email if no one's read it. But then we can do much more complex flows as well, things like batch together all of these comment notifications that are coming in, send an in-app notification into a feed, and then wait 20 minutes. If they haven't opened that, then send an email that reminds them to go and look at that. So we're basically just trying to take this set of problems that emerge when you're writing complex notification systems, which is basically like, no one wants to do this. It's not a core part of your product. Why are you spending time doing it? And we're trying to bring all of that and API-ify it, if you will. And I think that that playbook's pretty well-trodden at this point. Like, You've got your Twilio's, your Stripes, all of those kind of companies that have built these great abstraction layers that you then end up calling. Yeah, and that's literally what we're doing at Knock. So what kind of notification services do you plug into? So you mentioned Twilio. Yeah. And I know that Twilio at this point like does email and SMSs or something along those lines. What kind of notifications does Knock do? We try and be very holistic in what we cover. So right now we support email, like all of the, the known email providers. So SendGrid is owned by Twilio. You're right there. Mm-hmm. We support all of the known providers in email. For SMS, we support Twilio and Telnex, which are the two big ones. For push, we support a direct connection with APNS, FCM, which is Firebase cloud messaging. That covers Android and Apple there. Exactly, yeah. Android and Apple, basically, those base services. And then we support the React Native services as well, like Expo. What we're working on right now is a Slack kind of direct messaging integration as well. You know, Slack, Teams, Discord, all of those surface areas become viable as well. And then on top of that, we have our own integration with what powers those in-app feeds. So you can publish a message to our in-app feed. And then basically, we give you a set of drop-in React components that you can put into your application that gives you a feed out of the box that has real-time behavior, does synchronized badge counts, all of that kind of good stuff that you would be spending weeks, if not months, building on your own as a team. I'm glad you mentioned that last point because, yeah, I feel like that that is a pretty common thing to do in your own app. It's like half-heartedly done at first, and then it has to grow out, out of that. And especially with like Live View, I'm sure you know exactly where I'm going with this. There's You have to manage both the static render of your notifications and the Live View render of, that, of maybe that same exact... Anyway, very happy to hear that you guys are trying to solve that as well and giving some drop-in kind of components to manage that. That's, that's exciting. That sounds like really cool stuff. All of this was born out of the problem that you described before, which is like, we built this system in the past. So myself and my co-founder, we worked at Frame.io, which is a video collaboration platform. We basically saw this problem firsthand where we're like, hey, we really need to build out this really complex notification engine, but we're going to start really small. And it became this ball of mud where we're just like (laughs) slapping code on where we're like, ah, now the product manager's got another requirement. And now we need to like, iterate and test out all of these email templates and different copies. So I'm spending developer time like putting engineers on like copy updates and emails and things like that. And we basically sat back after frame and we were like, hey, that was a big time suck. We should do that better. So one question I had, just so we can kind of help get a picture in our mind of if I wanted to sign up for this service and I wanted to do SMS, would I also need to sign up for my own Twilio account and bring my credentials? Or do you do all of that? And how does that managed? So we manage the delivery on your behalf. So you're bringing your Twilio credentials. We're working to make that really easy so that you can get set up without that. But when you go to production, you would need your own one just because we don't want to, we don't want to become experts at notification delivery. That's like very much solved, right? Like there's really fantastic email services like Postmark is incredible for transactional email, really great deliverability. Like we don't want to move into that space. 
But we want to take everything between your application and that delivery and package it up so that you don't have to write that bit, you know, because an API call to those senders isn't that hard. Like that's not the problem. It's really all of the logic that comes between it. That makes sense. And that also means that you can separate yourself from the billing of those events from those different providers. So like I can manage how I am billed by Twilio separately. So you're not having to like, oh, we're going to send it all through our own managed Twilio and then we're going to bill you for those events. And yeah, it's like, it's a good model. Yeah, exactly. So our our model for pricing is basically all just usage-based. So effectively, you know, you use you send a certain number of notifications. We give you like ten thousand free a month that you can send, and then basically anything after that we charge a small fee for. The Knock app and the feature set that you're kind of describing kind of touches home a little bit for me because we've been doing a lot of marketing engineering lately, and we're using tools like Segment, which was recently bought by Twilio. Also, <laughs> yeah. I can foresee them being like a competitor here soon because they're buying up all these tools and. So we use Segment, we're using Braze and all these tools to just like very complicated ways of like gathering data and then sending reminder emails like you were talking about and doing all this stuff. And it's just so hard to use that we hired a guy to learn the tools and like automate these marketing campaigns. And so I can really appreciate, you know, like being developer friendly, making it really clean you know, Mux.com is a is a good example. And they're Elixir, right? That's very developer friendly. You go in and it's actually kind of funny. You like you hit a create button and it pulls up like a little JSON editor. And it's like, what do you want to send in this request? It's just a post. Like it's so developer centric that like it's pulling up a JSON editor when you want to create a record. And, you know, Elixir based company, obviously a little bias here, but rooting for you to have an awesome there's a lot of competition in the space too. So Yeah, totally. I I would say just one thing on that point. What we have really been trying to focus on is this like transactional product notifications rather than those marketing ones. Because as you pointed out, there's a ton of tools in that space, right? But what we have seen is that your marketing team will use all those tools. But when you want to send out transactional messages, how many of you have just put like Phoenix templates for email sends in your app, right? And things like that. So Typically, what happens is like you have that nice like marketing tool set. So your marketing team's off running free, you know, and then, yeah, you have to do some data plumbing or whatever to segment. But like on the transactional side, teams are just building this and they have a lot of other problems that they need to focus on. You know, I really do believe like and sometimes this is a hard sell to engineers, right? It's definitely one of those things where it's like buying software versus building it is a difficult sell at times, right? Because you're like, how hard can it be to build a system like that? How hard can this be? We'll just do it in two weeks. Famous last words. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And there's like the classic like Hacker News, like Dropbox, like I could just build that in a weekend, you know, Um, that kind of mentality that often appears here. But the reality, again, is like one of those systems, it starts off really simple. You evolve it over time and it quickly just becomes something that is handling a lot of volume, is handling a lot of complexity. You end up like, running whole teams that are managing systems like that where you could be placing those engineers in better places and let's let's be honest like more interesting work as well so that's what we're trying to do and obviously it's not some like entirely philanthropic like endeavor like we're we're definitely trying to build a business around this but we see a really fantastic opportunity here as well i think that's funny that you took the part that you know like that's really painful it's kind of it's like it takes a lot of work takes you away from your focus and you're like yeah we want to focus on the stuff no one no one enjoys. <laughs> yeah, so we want to <laughs> do all the yucky stuff. Honestly, if you ask every engineer and you're like, oh, do you remember when you wrote an email template? Do you remember how like how bad that was? You know? <laughs> and then debugging why it didn't look right on this client versus that client. Exactly. Right. Yeah. We're definitely trying to like shift that. So most of that tool chain is in like a visual editor so that your product managers or like growth managers or whoever it is that owns that system can actually make those updates without engineering having to be there. So you mentioned the idea of transactional events that need notifications. Can you just give an example of what that is we're talking about? A good example would be, let's say you have a collaboration engine and you built commenting on top of it, right? So one of those events would be comment created or new comment, something like that. And then that would trigger a notification workflow whereby maybe you're sending that push notification, you're batching those messages together, and then you're sending out an email. That's the kind of abstraction that you would call knock with. So there's like that infamous workflow chart that like someone from Slack produced. Is this what you're solving here? 
A hundred percent. So we handle all your preferences. We handle all of that for you. And it's like one of those things where imagine that chart distilled into a piece of software. That's what we're trying to build. Yeah. So we should definitely put a link to that one in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> Cade said a word a while back ago that's kind of near and dear to our hearts, a, a topic, if you will. He said the word elixir. How did it impact you and your your startup? I'm hearing a lot of problems that I feel like Elixir is really good at here. And I'm, I'm curious, are these the reasons why you chose it? Yes, I definitely want to talk about Elixir here as well. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's two things. There's founding a company and choosing the tool chain that you know best so that you can iterate fastest, right? And for me, that's Elixir. Like I've been writing Elixir now for five years with varying degrees of success and building different companies with it and building different projects. And there was definitely that. But I think beyond that, there's also trying to pick the right tool for the job. It felt like for once, Elixir was not just a good fit, but a great fit for this problem space. So the way that we've modeled the system right now is that every notification becomes a process that can effectively pause and resume itself and execute this workflow engine. And that's backed right now by Oban. That gives us like tons of scheduling and reliability and things like that. That's like really nice guarantees in the system. Really, what we're looking at here is that it lends itself really, really nicely to this actor model. And that's where Elixir has been a really great fit for us in executing this kind of steps of workflows and all of the different fault tolerances that we need and guarantees of some parts of it need to be retried. Some parts of it can fail really gracefully. Some parts of it can just blow up. But that part has been really, really fantastic to lean into. But Elixir actually represents all of our backend right now. So we basically broke the application into a control plane and a data plane. The control plane is what you kind of interact with through our dashboard. So that part is written in Absinthe, so GraphQL. And then we use React and Apollo to build out all of the kind of UI. And then in the data plane side of things, which is what actually executes the notification engine, that's Phoenix, Oban, and then a lot of custom code, as you might imagine. I go to Oban too for for like durability. If I need something that that fails and can retry, that's the first thing I think of too. Any job system really in Oban is is usually my choice there. But having all of these, what I imagine to be small notifications and so many of them and so process driven, I actually imagine that you would be using something like a message bus. We do as well, yeah. So this is a really interesting question, which is like, how do you schedule something, right? Like, how do you actually just think about something that can be durably scheduled and executed, right? When we have that problem exactly because of the fact that our notifications can be delayed and then they need to be resumed at a certain point and things like that. So Oban represented the easiest way to go from zero to one in actually doing that. Whether that hangs around for a really long time in our stack is up for debate. And I I would imagine down the road, we'll probably replace it. Sorry, Parker. (laughs) (laughs) I actually hope we can leverage Open for a really long time, to be honest, because it just made writing that really, really simple. And like, we get really nice guarantees with it, as you've already pointed out. I was looking around for like, what else could we use to do this, like actually scheduling jobs at a certain time and make sure that they have guarantees that are running at least near that time. Like we don't have like a hard real time problem, but we at least need to be within a few seconds of that, right? All of the other solutions that I was looking at were really complicated to get going. This is kind of like why we chose Elixir in the beginning of this journey as well, right? You're building a startup. We got funded, but that doesn't necessarily mean to say that this thing is just going to work and we're just going to like build this like really elaborate piece of engineering that everyone's just going to want. I think it's really important to lean into that mindset when you're building out an MVP. And I feel like Elixir is a really great tool set for that, right? You can move really fast. You have this like wealth of tools behind you. And obviously we've got the Erlang VM and like that means that we can just do so much in this kind of process-oriented way. And I feel like that has really enabled us to move quickly whilst having a fairly good foundation to build on top of for the future as well. So as you've been building this company, have you gotten to the point you said you'd gotten some funding? So that probably means you started hiring more people. So what has the process been like of growing a company that's Elixir-backed? Like, who are you hiring? Like, are these people who knew Elixir and didn't know Elixir? And what was that been like? Hiring early stage is both a combination of finding great technical fit, but then also finding great like people who want to be there in an early stage environment and building a company alongside you, right? I would say like we tried to find Elixir engineers and we've actually been really successful in that. Like 
Fortunately, having a podcast and a, running a conference means that you might have a bit of a network, which is quite nice to leverage at points. Lucky you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not everyone that's come into the company has come from that, but it's certainly been useful to at least, you know, approach people and see if they're interested as well. To answer the question, yeah, we hired Elixir engineers first and foremost. I don't think that that's how we're going to scale the company, though, going forward. This is a pretty common thread. And, and, you know, I've run an Elixir team in the past and like trying to hire for it. Hiring becomes difficult. We were talking before about community and responsibilities of like growing the community. And I, I actually see that as like a lot of companies' responsibilities as well. It's not just about like hiring the same 400 Elixir engineers who are in the US and just like trading them between companies the whole time. It's actually about like training and growing more engineers, right? And showing them and teaching them about this tool chain and this like excellent community that we're developing here. That has been something that I've deeply believed in. But to do that, you need a good base of talent and like senior engineers so that you can then train those other folks. So that's kind of where we've been starting and then where we'll look to go in the future. That's interesting. We've been hiring a lot of engineers lately at my company and not a single one of them has had prior Elixir experience. And honestly, they catch on so fast. Like anyone who's been programming for years, like they catch on to Elixir so quickly. And one of the first guys we hired, I felt like within several months, he was just as proficient as anyone else in Elixir. And I find myself doubting that he just started like a few months ago writing Elixir for the first time. I always talk about it as like, you've got those different inflection points in learning where it's like, yeah, you learn the base language, a lot of people coming from IO, and then you're thinking about like, actually functional kind of immutable programming. And that seems like a bit of a hurdle for folks. They get over that. And then you're looking at okay, well, what is OTP in this whole other world? And how do I think about processes and like actors and that kind of whole endeavor? And that feels like a bigger hurdle a lot of the times. A lot of that you don't need to learn straight away. And you can help people kind of encourage them and take them down that path. But a lot of the times when you're onboarding people into a code base, the idioms and the patterns are already established. So you're basically teaching them what within those guardrails, right? Like you're teaching them like, how we write um, most of the time, let's be real, like you're just writing stuff into a database via Ecto, right? <laughs> or like writing controllers or absinthe or whatever it is. And hopefully all of the patterns and the idioms there are established. And then I think it's like, it's, it is a responsibility of the team to like help them understand the, the bit that's like below that, right? That really powers it. How does it work in terms of like, let's spin up the observer. Let's show them how like what the process tree looks like. Let's really talk about like what's happening here with supervision and things like that. But that has been like how I've typically tried to train engineers in the past on it. What I think is interesting about that, because I totally agree, like you can get really far in Elixir and Phoenix and not spend any time learning about processes. That's a really powerful thing that you don't have to become an expert of OTP before you can feel like proficient. And I also think when you start talking about supervision trees and processes, and really you only need a couple people on your team who set that up. And once it's set up, like no one else really touches it. It's interesting because like I, I hear sometimes about that frustration that people come, they're really excited to work at an electric company. It's like, oh, but I'm not using anything with processes and, and OTP. It's like, well, you are. It's just being done for you by other abstractions. There is that like new Elixir programmer, shiny, everything should be a gen server, everything should be a process <laughs> problem. That That is like rampant, right? Because I think ultimately we all want to program things where you feel like, wow, I'm really technical. I'm doing this really powerful thing and I'm spinning up processes and it's really awesome. And like, and I felt like that as well, but there is the realities of building and operating and running systems like that, right? Like whereby... There's the danger of like the single global process, like, and now how do you scale that? And I, I have definitely been guilty of this in the past where, you know, you write a system that is really fantastic on one node, but you're thinking about like, oh, how do we actually scale this? You know, what are we going to do here? Because effectively what we've got is a stateful service now where my preference these days, and this, I don't know, this might be like heresy here, but I try and steer away from anything to do with like distal stuff as much as possible when we're building like early days really just leaning on like some other kind of centralized state store like redis or whatever it might be a database you know they're pretty good at storing things and retrieving things so 
trying to do that as much as possible before we even think about doing anything in that kind of distributed space. And I agree with you that there's a lot of beginners and a lot of people new to the community who come in who really want to do that. And I think it's also our job to steward them away from maybe you know going too far down that path as well. I think I, I heard a quote that's like senior engineer's job is to know what the complexity is and to steer away from it. <laughs> so I think a lot of developers have been in, in the shoes that you've been in, Chris, where you've said, I have an idea for something. I want to create something. And then actually taking that next step of saying, okay, I'm quitting my job. I'm doing this. I'm really leaning into this. This is what I'm doing now for some period of time. Do you have any advice that you could share with us as like, don't do it or like, yeah, here, here's what you need to be aware of. Or this is when you knew you could do it. So I've been in the startup world for a while. It is really, really fun. I have to say, I really love it. I love being in that kind of fast paced environment where there's a lot of creation, there's a lot of newness, there's a lot, just a lot of problems to solve, right? But I definitely got to the point in my career where I was thinking like, okay, well, I've kind of led teams, I've managed folks. I've done this, but I've never built my own company from the beginning. And it's always kind of been like, I've come in later and helped someone else or built some products for someone else, right? And that was like really the motivation for me was like, okay, well, this is like a whole thing I've never done and I would love to do it. And I think like everyone does that with this idea of like, I'm going to solve all of the problems I saw in the past, right? And we are never going to like retread all those like bad problems that we ended up with at this company, right? (laughs) I think it's probably fair, but it's kind of naive because you're going to just introduce a whole load of other problems at the same time, right? But that was really the catalyst for me is like getting to that point in my career where I felt like, okay, I've done quite a bit. I really like building teams. I really like solving tech problems. I really like being there on like the zero to one part of the, the problems as well. And I think that's probably where I'm better. I don't think I'm like a fantastic later stage engineer who's figuring out tons of scale issues. And I like to think like, I would prefer to just hire people who are way smarter than me who can do that. That was really the impetus for me, just like having that and going along with it. The advice I would give to others who are thinking about embarking on that journey is just the realities of being a technical co-founder in a business. Yeah, you're going to code. That's for sure. Like, yeah, a lot of the initial problem space and exploration is going to be on your shoulders. And that means like making all of the early tech mistakes that I'm sure we've all been like part of down the road, right? Where you're like cursing the founder. <laughs> Always get blaming the lines. Like, ah, <laughs> oh, Chris again. Yeah. And uh, if there's anyone from Frame.io here, like I'm sure they're also thinking like, oh, this guy. It's like, I've definitely been there and have made a lot of those mistakes. And I think that's just kind of part of it. You're You're moving fast. You're trying to make the best decisions you have at the time. And it's kind of accepting that as part of your role where you will basically be the scapegoat forever in this company of all the bad decisions. There is just so much more to building a business than the technical side. Let's talk about marketing. Let's talk about fundraising. Let's talk about hiring. Let's talk about like just basic business operations and strategy. There's just, there is just so much there. And I would say only do this if you are okay with running full steam, lots of problems simultaneously and feeling okay with one day feeling like your head's in your hands and you don't know what's happening. And then the next day you're elated because you get some new customer. It's definitely a roller coaster. Did you feel like you were good at all of that? Like you were good at marketing and good at fundraising? Did you have ideas on how to do that starting points or were you like completely new to it? Self-promotion is such a weird thing. I definitely don't feel like I'm good at it. Like it was one of those skills where it's like, I want to be better at writing. I I know that like the way that our company is going to succeed is if we get fantastic at blogging. Like let's look at fly.io as a great example. <laughs> like such good content coming off of there. That was an area that I I really feel like I need to do better at. But you know, it's all about growing, right? Like it's all about like getting better at some of these things. Fundraising, I had no clue about. And that was a hard experience earlier in the year. We had like 100 conversations with VCs and you're just being told like, no, over and over. (laughs) It's kind of brutal. I was like doing 12 hours of video calls a day, staying up until like midnight on the East Coast time because everyone's on the West Coast, you know, and you're eventually trying to get money in the bank and just 
being honest here, like the tech doesn't matter at that point. No one cares. No one cares like what you're using. No one cares that it's Elixir. No one cares that you're picking the right tool for the job, right? It's the story. And it's like, how good of a uh, like storyteller are you about where you're going and what the idea is and what you're doing there? I think for engineers, that's like, well, what? The, the tech doesn't matter. You're telling me I could use anything? <laughs> but, you know, I, I do like to think that we picked the right tool for the job in building the company. And hopefully that's going to really pay dividends down the road. But yeah, ultimately it's just like you're there to create a business and whatever gets you to that end goal fastest, you know. I've often heard it suggested that it's a good idea to have a co-founder. If nothing else, just to help have someone to talk things through with. I know you co-started Knock with Sam Seeley. And I'm curious about, you say you're like the CTO. It just kind of how have you guys broken up some of those roles and what do you find valuable in co-founder? I wouldn't do this without someone, honestly. Like, I don't even know how to express to you like how much value Sam brings to my life and to the company. So that was like very intentional of like why we started the company together as well, because he's like very much on the product business side and I'm very much on like the tech side. I don't really have another and so um, <laughs> there is like very complementary skills there. And there's just things that like I just wouldn't be able to do honestly and i don't really have an interest in doing and like part of our exploration of like do we want to start a company together was figuring out what those gaps are and seeing if we were complementary as well and we had the luxury of like working together for two years which made it a lot easier to know like how you work you know each other to the extent whereby you can kind of call each other out on the things that you're doing and be a bit more real and so that was really helpful as well would never do this without someone <laughs> Well, Chris, this has been really fun to have you come and talk with us. Give us an update on MPEX. I think that's really cool. It's an exciting conference that's going to be in my neck of the woods. But also just hearing about your experience in building a company and learning about how Knock can actually help us as Elixir developers who are trying to solve these problems, how we can keep our focus on our business problems instead of all the other pieces of the pie for notifications and doing all of that. So I think that's really cool. But before we let you go, I did want to find out just kind of what's next. Where are you guys going next? Are you hiring at Knock? Yeah, we're actually not hiring right now, weirdly. We're trying to keep the team small. So what's next for us is we are working towards like a general availability kind of launch. And that will be in March, probably like March 1, something like that. What that means is we're opening up Knock to a lot of people. So Right now, we've been in like a waitlist phase. You know, if you've got notification problems at your company, please feel free to sign up for the waitlist. We are actively onboarding customers, but right now we are trying to be really selective in who we take onto the platform just because we're figuring out the API design. We're figuring out all the kinks in the system. We're making sure it can scale. We've been doing tons of load testing, things like that. So we're just really trying to gear up and make sure that when we turn on the floodgates, and hopefully there will be a flood, that we can actually support that kind of load and make sure we have a really excellent product to onboard other folks onto. If people want to follow you online or get in touch with you or maybe follow the conference, where should they go to do all that? I love Twitter. Spend most of my day on there, I'm sorry to say. You can go and follow MPEX at twitter.com forward slash MPEXCO. And then I'm there at CJBell underscore. Couldn't get the CJ Bell. But yeah, everywhere else online, I'm just CJ Bell. Awesome. Well, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate your time. I loved hearing about what you're doing and just this whole startup journey. So hopefully, maybe we'll check in with you down the road and hear about your wild success. <laughs> We'd love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me today. It's been a blast. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. Thinking Elixir.